Welcome to a very unusual and unorthodox episode of Iron City Live. The um, wonderful 80s-tastic music that you're hearing right now is by a new favorite group of mine called The Midnight, and this particular song is called Vampires, which kind of fits in with uh, the book report that we're getting ready to do. Uh, I'm Wendallion, and joining me is Roar and Cat. How you doing, guys? Yeah, yeah, so um, the three of us decided, I don't know, roughly a month ago, that we were all going to read a new book. Well, it's not new for me, it was new for you guys. Uh, a book by Kim Harrison called, uh, it's the Hollow series, and uh, some sometimes referred to as the Rachel Morgan series, but the book title is Dead Witch Walking. So I uh, thought we'd give a quick rundown of that today and uh, what our impressions of it was. So um, let's do that. Um, you just want to roundtable this, go like uh, yeah, everybody say kind of what they think. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Kat, why don't you start us? Um, what was your, so if you were rating this on a, on a 10 scale, your overall impression before we get into any of the nitty gritty, uh, what would you give it? I would give it um, a strong eight. Yeah, you liked it then. Yes, because I listened to it on Audible at work, and I find myself, when I was doing busy work, I just was stopping, and I was like blankly staring at my computer screen just listening to the book. Yeah, that's that's definitely a hallmark of, of a decent one, is when um, you basically can't stop so uh so all right that's that's pretty strong how about you roar um i'm exactly eight out, of ten, eight out of ten as well so uh just as a little like um background you recommended some um urban fantasy books previously and hit the ground running with them so this is a second urban fantasy like pure urban fantasy series of I've, I've gone for and i reckon it's a strong eight out of ten overall Okay, so and the other series that I that I recommended to you, which uh, Kat, I can't recommend enough, is the Mercy Thompson series by Patricia Briggs. Um, okay, so um, just without getting into any detail, did you enjoy the first book of the Hollows more than the first book of the Mercy Thompson series, or no? I think digestibility for uh, the Mercy Thompson series is a lot easier. So it's it. it there's a lot less complex complexity from book one. So, but this is that's the bit I actually liked about this series because there's a whole bunch of different complexity, like different vampires, like within the vampire community, there's different complexities, and then within the magic alone, there's different complexities, and they start explaining like the different racial complexities from laws and everything. And and I liked that about this series because it was a lot deeper than than um, the Mercy Thompson series, which is a little bit light lighter, but then. It's easy to consume. I think I consumed 12 books in three months. So, Yeah, and um, I absolutely agree that um, it seems, I think that Patricia Briggs did a better job of easing people into the into the water. And I think with um, the Hollow series, they just dump you off the deep end and expect you to swim. 
Um, yeah, and I think if you if you so we play Dungeons and Dragons on the side, and I think if you're the type of person to like the complexity of the different rules and and um, traits and all that, then you're probably going to like this. And Kat, what were your thoughts on it? Uh, I agree. It certainly just threw you in, expecting you to have a lot of prior knowledge, and you know, there was a little bit of world building, but. Most of it was just like, oh, there's vampires, there's werewolves, there's pixies, there's fairies, there's witches and warlocks and all these other kind of people. And it's just like, whoa. It it certainly was hard and heavy at first. I agree. And I think the only way that she gets away with it is because it's set in Cincinnati. It's just a, it's a familiar setting that everybody can relate to. And then um, you're, you are thrown off the deep end. But then you're given some exposition later about uh, explaining some of the the different things. Um, and so, um, Kat, what did you think of um, uh, Kim Harrison's writing style? It was fine. Um, I'm not a huge book connoisseur, so I don't feel like I have much um, way of knowing any writing style. The only other author I consumed religiously was Ted Decker, and he's more of a thriller kind of horror kind of guy. So this was a completely different vibe from what I'm used to. Okay. Um, and what about you, Roar? Yeah, no, I like that. I didn't have any issues with it. I suppose I've just come off the back of a different full fantasy series, um, which is quite hard to read. So I actually found this a little bit refreshing, but it might not have been the writing style it might have been just because of I've switched context. So um, this was actually like a little bit of a fresh air. It's kind of like, you know, if you read the Silmarillion and then you read the Hobbit, the Hobbit's actually quite an easy read in comparison to Silmarillion. Yeah. I, I thought reading the Silmarillion was like almost digesting a dictionary. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this is, this is, I think it's, if you're into urban fantasy and you, and you get that kind of like, you know, it's got like a grungy kind of like FIB, oh, sorry, sorry, FBI kind of um, cop style urban fantasy. And I liked it. It was, it was very wind. Yeah, definitely my uh, my speed. But um, so I would also uh, give this a eight. Uh, I thought it was a, a great introduction to the hollows and uh, also a good introduction to uh, two other uh, main characters, what I consider main characters, um, both uh, Ivy Tamwood and Jenks. And um, I absolutely appreciate the um, the diversity that she was able to weave into the three main characters. They don't have a lot in common, and their demeanor comes across completely different. And I think that's difficult to do um, for writers to jump from character to character uh, i've actually got a question on that yeah so out of the three main characters who's your favorite um well it's easy to love uh, it's easy to love rachel because she is the main character in the in the story um i am more intrigued by ivy than i am the others um although if uh, for 
pure comedic and fun value, it's Jenks. But uh, if you made me pick a, a favorite character other than Rachel, it would be Ivy. What do you think? I I want to refer to Cat first before I tell you who my favorite is. Cat, who's so, yours? So, Wind asked me the same question um, about a couple weeks ago, and I don't think I had a favorite character. Like, no one really stuck out that much and really attached to me quite yet. But if I was forced to pick one, um, it would be Ivy. And that's mainly because the way I envisioned her was stuck out to me more than the rest of them. So every time she talked, I just had this one picture that I'll explain later in my head. And she was probably the most um, diverse, I think. Yeah, I really rate Ivy as well. But um, I think she's got a lot of complexity into her character as well. And I, I think she's super cool. She's definitely a close second. Uh, Jenks is actually my favorite. And what did it for me was when... Um, um, I, I want to guess. I want to guess. Yeah, go okay. Was it when he was on the dashboard dancing with the little hula doll? <laughs> no, no, oh, no. I want to no. guess. It was... Yeah, go okay. It's when him and Nick are comparing scars. No, that is a good one, though. It's when it's when she transforms into a uh, ferret and then she gets a close-up of what he's actually like and then she realizes when she's, like, smaller that he's, like, this... Um, you know, he's like really well muscled. Yeah, he's, he's freaking like really Adonis. <laughs> yeah, and then she's like, like, oh, if I was little, I actually rate him. And then, um, and then the fact that he's like, then he goes around killing a bunch of fairies with his sword. I was just like, well, there, there's definitely a back. You know, pixies don't live this long, but this guy's got a backstory and it's something epic. You can tell that this guy is epic. So whereas um, Ivy, she's she's got a lot of complexity. I think she's a cool character. But because she's still a living vampire, she's quite young in comparison. And I just think that Jenks is probably, uh, that he's got a lot more to give, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, I, I think they all bring something to the table, which is, um, for for instance, when I read um, the Dragonlance series, there were characters in the companions that I really just didn't think were necessary to have in there for any reason uh the their parts of the plot could have easily been swallowed up by other characters i i never get that impression with those three so um yeah i liked all mm -hmm. of them um okay so um how about marguerite gavin the narrator um what would you give her on a 10 scale as far as her uh, ability to bring you into the world and voice all of the different characters in that. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, uh, this one was, uh, like, I so this is where I'll be probably on a different stand in the cat because I, I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I'm, I'm like you, Wind. I, I love audiobooks. It's my favorite way to consume books. I do still read physically, um, and I think this is a really hard thing to get to get really, really well. And there's very few voice actors who are really nines and tens. Um, so I would rate her around about a seven or an eight. I think her voices were really good. I think she there was not a point where um, the way I rate it is, you know, an eight's pretty strong score for a narrator. If 
at any point in the story, I'm like, which character is this? Or if they switch the voices or that kind of thing, that's what ruins it for me. And I didn't get that at all throughout this. I think she did the different voices well enough that you could differentiate them. Yeah, what'd you think, Kat? Um, I would agree with the seven or an eight. Um, it was certainly strong. She had her more iconic voices coming out from certain characters like um the um, I can't remember the the funky dude that Rachel always was wor- working with in the F- FIB. Oh, the, Captain Eden. No, the oh the guy. The uh, yeah, the Francis, warlock. Francis Percy, Francis, yeah. yes, Francis, Francis. Like he had an iconic voice, um, to me at least. And uh, Trent Kalamak, that was also another voice that I think she mm. nailed right on. Mm. Um, and she, it was a pretty wide, diverse um, of voice acting. Like, yeah, like Roar said, it. I didn't get a point where I was just like, okay, who's talking? It was just like, oh, Ivy's talking now, or Jenks is talking, or Nick is coming around. Um, maybe what might lean more towards a seven is reading, going from Rachel to reading maybe just the book itself, the transition between there is kind of similar. So maybe that's where I might docker for it, but the rest I think is all good. So I think that um, you find that a lot of the narrators um, will, uh, especially if the main character of a story is their same gender, they will do all of the filler bits in the main character's voice anyway. So that wasn't my biggest problem with uh, Gavin. And and I actually, I, I would say a seven as well. I think she did a really good job. Um, my biggest problem was bleed over. Um, there were times when um, Ivy's voice and Captain Eden's voice uh, kind of started to bleed into one another for me. And, um, she wasn't quite able to draw that distinction. Um, but uh, having said that, I think that she still did a fabulous job. I think that she's, um, definitely a, um, a a narrator that you can appreciate that doesn't ruin a story for you. And I've said this a million times. I think a really good narrator can elevate a story. They can't take garbage and make it awesome, but they can elevate it but a bad narrator can take a really awesome book and make it garbage for you. And uh, I certainly don't think that she was on that end of the scale. I think that she did a great job of bringing me into the hollows. And if you guys stick with this series, you will find that uh, I think it was book five for whatever reason, they swapped her out for someone else. And I almost didn't make it through the book. Fortunately, Gavin came back for the rest of the series because I think they figured it out. But um, anyway, and I don't know that the other voice actor was bad. They just weren't nearly as good. And then, yeah, I think you also get like a nostalgic feeling as well because I got this on the Mercy Thompson book series. There's one book in it because because we've and haven't announced this. I'm not going to say any spoilers, but there's a book throughout the series where they switch the voice actors. And at first, I was like, why did they do this? And they had to do it because the person narrating it is a character they don't want you to know about until later. I think you know the book, and so. 
but even the jarring of you get used to the characters with certain voices and, and to switch away from that with different voice actors, it takes you a little bit longer to get around who's talking. And that can be one of the biggest issues with audiobooks. Um, and there was a little bit of bleed over for me as well. And I think it was between the boyfriend, I can't remember his name, the witch from across the road. Uh, Keasley's uh, the witch across the road and Nick Sparagamos yeah. is the boyfriend. Yeah, but I totally agree with Kat where I think Trent Calamac's voice was, was nailed, I think, and um, Francis's was annoying. I hated it. He just really annoyed me, and I was like, "That's you can tell this character's annoying, and yeah. she's done good. So that was, that that's was perfect. Why, that's why it was so good, in my opinion, yeah. is because it was annoying. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I, I think that that's uh, it very, very defined the character very well. Hmm. So um, I I don't know if I mentioned this before to you guys, but uh, I'll I'll say it for the benefit of the listeners. Um, all of the books in the Hollow series, I believe anyway, are actually knockoff names for uh, Clint Eastwood movies. So mm. this one uh, was named after the Clint Eastwood movie Dead Man Walking. And so switch to dead witch walking. Um, and then there's, um, like, uh, a fistful of dollars became a fistful of charms. And then, uh, for a few dollars more became for a few demons more. Uh, and so it's, it's all, uh, all of the titles that I remember anyway, are, uh, knockoffs of, of Clint Eastwood movies. Um, the, um, uh, the Deadpool was one of his uh, movies that became the Undead Pool. Um, so anyway, um, the so what do you think about the overall length um, of the book? Too short, too long? What do you think, Cat? I it thought it was fairly digestible. Um, it was not too long. It wasn't too short. Um, I got through at least half of it or a good chunk of it on one of my listening days um and that really caught me up with you guys and it i thought it was a pretty good length there was a little slow couple slow parts i thought but most of it was keeping me interested so it was 13 hours and 16 minutes long um and that uh, I think that most of the books in the series run between um, thirteen and you know sixteen, maybe seventeen hours. So this one was actually um, one of the the shorter ones in in the series. But um, you get into some of the later ones like Black Magic Sanction. It's almost twenty hours long. It's like nineteen and change. Um, so what'd you think, Roar? Too short, too long? Well, I mean, I finished it fairly quickly. <laughs> um, so I could have gone longer, but I think it was like for the storyline, it was, it was good. Like there was one point in the story I was like, this is chaos. There's just so much stuff going on. How are they going to pull this together in time? Um, but then they pulled it together pretty quickly. So, um, but it didn't feel rushed. I think, I think it was fine. Um, I can't wait to get into the next book, which was why I, I, because I've got, I know I've got certain questions where I want to make like predictions on this podcast. I was like, well, 
let's do this podcast quickly so I can listen to the next book. So I'm, I'm in, <laughs> I'm bought, I'm, I'm bought in now. Okay. Um, so I thought it was about the right length to uh, get me introduced. Um, I'm going to agree with Kat and say there were a couple of parts that drug, and I thought those times might have been able to be better utilized to bring all that chaos that you were talking about, Roar, and to a, um, give, give the wrap-up on that a little more time. But overall, I thought the pacing was really good, and um, I, I didn't have any real complaints about it. Um, you know, the uh, Mercy Verse books are usually less than 10 hours, so these, um, um, by comparison, are, you know, 40% longer probably. Uh, but they did get a lot done in, in, in the time that they, that they had. Okay, so... Um, why don't we get into, uh, just a quick overview of the plot. Uh, so Rachel starts off as a, uh, Interland security or IS runner. And a runner is basically a, um, a person that's given, they're almost like cops and they're sent to, uh, wrangle, um, you, you know, um, inter, interlanders, which, um, also bears some explaining. Um, tell me, tell me how you interpret this. Um, that um, the way the way that I got it was that, um, like elves, fairies, all these other creatures, they've always been around, but they've been in hiding. And then when a bioengineered virus was spread by a um, a tomato essentially uh, killed off a bunch of humanity. The um, all of the hidden races basically made themselves public. And this was an event called the Turn. Is that what you guys got out of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, and I think it was a major event. They the what I got from it was that the the interland species, so like the the non humans, you because of the disparate humans were outpopulate uh, they were overpopulating and essentially these were in decline all the other creatures and then so when the human population died off there was a little bit more equality in numbers and they used that ability to then to come out and say well you should accept us now and uh, we'll also help you fix things up right in so a way. And, and then um, but then the humans were um, naturally paranoid about this and tried to kind of divorce some of their agencies from these um, interlanders, and they uh, so they created um, their own uh, policing agency called the FIB, which is a federal interland bureau. Is that right? Yeah. And so it's funny that it spells fib, and. Um, <laughs> And then the on the Interland side of things, they created the IS or Interland Security. So Rachel worked. Yeah, and I think, Go ahead. I think the point of the IS was to so the Interlanders could self manage themselves, so self police themselves, so that they were going around like vampires eating humans, and they could keep the paranormals like in check, so that they they could keep the paranoia from humans down, essentially. And so the FIB was created because they're like, well, 
we can't let them self-police themselves because they're just going to be corrupt. Let's set up our own bureau where we monitor them. And and Kat, did you get the impression that this was kind of fueled by vampires uh, taking a long view on things and, and having this done or why, what was your take on why they did the IS? Um, probably to combat the FIB, honestly, because there's always got to be some sort of competition. So I feel like the humans made the FIB. Well, then they're going to be like, well, why would we have humans police us when we can police ourselves? So I guess in a way, yeah. All right. So, uh, and, but Rachel's a runner for the IS. Um, and it, it is common knowledge that if you terminate contract with IS, that um, even though there's nothing official, everyone believes that you'll have a death threat put out on you. And she decides to quit anyway after she's sent to tag a leprechaun. And when um, the leprechaun tries to make a deal with her, basically to grant her three wishes, um, she sees her chance to leave the IS. Well, she was going to wish for, um, first, the first wish is always to not get caught. <laughs> and the second wish, it would have been to pay off her contract to the IS. And then she still would have had a wish. But it ended up that, uh, Ivy had agreed to leave with her and Jenks was going to, and they both wanted a wish. So the only wish that Rachel got to make was not to get caught <laughs> doing the yeah, deal. Yeah, so on that, it's like not not to get caught making a deal with the leprechaun because they can wind you up in, de- in jail. Right, right. Because technically you're letting a criminal off. They're giving you three wishes. And so that's what that wish was. And her second wish was going to be not to die from the wasn't, – wasn't that it? From Not to die from the well, – It was, it was either that or to pay off the, the death threat so that – that's that right. she wouldn't die or whatever it was. I yeah, it was. Uh, uh, do you remember exactly, Cat? Mm-hmm. I I can't remember what the second one was, going, but basically, yes, it was to not die, whether that was paying it off or not. But Ivy comes from the Tamwood family, which is a big deal vampire clan, and uh, we mentioned earlier that she's a living vampire, and uh, so. Kim Harrison makes the distinction in the hollows between living and dead vampires. Living vampires are born having a soul. And if they die and their soul leaves, then they become undead vampires without a soul. So living and dead vampires. So Ivy's still a living vampire, which means she can walk in the sunlight. She can uh, worship. She can uh, walk on holy ground. Uh, But she still craves blood and which completely freaks Rachel out. Um, but um, so they can live, they can live like a normal vampire in all aspects, except for they don't have the downsides yet. But my understanding from that is you have to be birthed as a normal human. You is have, that correct? You have to be birthed as a vampire. So but, yeah, someone who already a live mother, right? Not turned by a bite. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, so what, and that's the reason why she's so special is the Tamwood family have like really long line of living 
vampires and she's the last remaining heir living vampire so they want her before she dies they want her to have a baby who's another living vampire to carry on though and and that's kind of the way that's the reason why the is will leave her alone because there's a there seems to be a lot as you said the vampires seem to be te- paying a long view on this and it seems like a lot of the managers in the is or the higher up seem to be vampires and so it seems like they have taken a long view and so they knew that they were kind of left alone to some degree and uh speaking of living vampires we met another one in this book right uh kisten mm-hmm. um so ivy knows kisten somehow um uh, it wasn't really made clear how though right you know the vampire who's related to kisten is her oh somewhat uncle oh that's right that's right yeah so yeah it's like an adoptive uncle kind of thing um yeah and um and kisten is his scion so like um yeah. even though kisten's a living vampire and um his um his master isn't uh he can draw on some of his master's power which makes yeah, so, Kisten pretty powerful. So, for example, living vampires, they're not able to use their, like, their charm or whatever it is. Um, they pull, they un- pull an aura, I think, is the way they describe it. Against unwilling um, humans, whereas vampires could, um, dead vampires could. So I think the only reason why he could pull the aura is because he had a tapped power to this uncle vampire who is essentially that's what that scion relationship is so cat you went oh you didn't even remember kisten did you i forgot um he was a little snippet in there yeah so that was it was just like he was kind of dashed in there um so like a lot of little details in the book there's just a little sprinkling of seasoning and then they're just like hope you remember that or hope you (laughs) know what's going on so um Okay, so Rachel leaves the IS. They immediately put a death threat on her. And uh, she gets uh, come after by all kinds of different... I think she's attacked by uh, fairies at some point. Uh, she's attacked by wares. She's attacked... Oh, no, no, fairies with catapults. That's yeah. That's pretty cool. So with, with, <laughs> like with the splat balls. So, yeah. Um, so the uh, magic that um, they're using against... Rachel is they're putting they're making potions and putting them inside of like um oh the paintballs that you would use on a you know a paintball gun course and then they've got the little catapults so they're they're firing the the spelled paintballs at her uh but Jenks's kids keep her safe uh they they go and collect them all <laughs> stick them on the back porch um so, but all of her, all of her possessions get, uh, spelled to where there's, um, you know, if she touches them, it'll kill her, that kind of thing. She has to have all of that taken care of. Um, goes into quite a bit of detail there. Yeah. Mm. On, I mean, as far as, um, okay. So there were, there were a hundred different ways they came out when it wasn't a hundred, but there was a bunch of different ways they came after her. What did you think was the most uh creative what which one did you completely miss 
What do you think, Cat? Um, or even that you just like the best? Probably their subtle attempts at the very beginning, um, like when she was on the bus and she met um the guy across the street and he just shook her hand and took a charm right off of her. That was supposed to kill her. Like I like the subtle attempts, but then you know as time went on, it got more and more and more and more bigger and drastic. Yes, and the, the most memorable one was the demon dog. Yeah, uh, that's and that's a huge plot point. Um, yeah, definitely. So, what was your favorite way that they came after her, Roar? Yeah, I, I agree with the cat. It's like the first one is there's just a passerby on the bus who just like sticks a charm, on, uh, like a death charm, like a delayed death charm on her back. And essentially it was just a matter of time before she would have been killed and she didn't even know it was there. And it, she happened chance to pass by the neighbor, which is the point that Kat said. And the neighbor then plucked the charm off her because he was a witch um, because she had gotten the address wrong. So it was like by pure co- coincidence that that, that, that that was picked up. I'm sure Jenks would have picked it up when he got to the house, but you never know how much more time she had. So I think that was probably the most elaborate and probably my favorite because that's the one that almost that was probably the closest one to from the assassin side to killing her. I know that there's a bunch of other people who were trying to kill her as well at the same time. Um, but the demon dog was like, so that one was good because you didn't know, even at the end, you kind of don't know who's sent, sent it because they alluded to the fact that the demon went back to go and beat up the, the sender. And so Rachel thinks that the sender is um, Kalamak because he's all beaten up. But it seems like there was two demons, or it's alluded to that there was actually two demons sent to two different locations, um, and both of them were beaten, and they went back to the original owner. So that that that's the same with me, like super interesting. And I think it opened up a whole new can of worms with like Leyline Magic and her dad who was then killed by demons and all this other kind of stuff that kind of opened up. And it also, I want to come back to this, I'm not going to say it yet, but opened up a really interesting point with Kalamak where he said, I don't work with dark witches, which was really interesting. And I want to come back to this in a minute, but back to you, Wind, on, on the, the jumps. Um, so uh, Keasley is one of my favorite background characters, the neighbor across the street. Uh, I think he's really well done. Uh, just kind of a old man that kind of is very aware of what happens in his neighborhood. He's arthritic. He's, um, he, you know, he's just kind of, um, he, he could be in any little town or city in, in, in the States, uh, anywhere in the world, really. Um, so yeah, I liked that one. Um, I, I had the most fun though, when, um, she, uh, as good of a runner as Rachel is supposed to be, she's really not very good at recognizing threats because she didn't recognize that one. She didn't recognize my favorite one was when the fairies were attacking and all of Jenks's kids were just plucking all of the, the paintballs, the spelled paintballs out of the air. And she thought they were just playing. <laughs> didn't have any idea she was under an attack. So um, that one was probably my favorite. Um, 
So anyway, just saying, I think I think on that point that they're not saying that she's just stupid, but it's because she's not used to assassins after her. She's usually lying in wait for other people to to rock up so she can arrest them, right? So it's it is she's outside of her normal remit of right. being a runner. Uh, yeah, that's true, and she's also you know she always brings her marks in alive too. It's not like she's there to assassinate them. Mm-hmm. So she's not used to that world. That's true. Um, but, um, so anyway, she's under this constant, uh, you know, death threat. And then she, uh, and, and the reason, really the reason that the IS, I think, was upset with her is because Ivy is their very best runner. And when Rachel left, um, she took Ivy with her and that made them mad. Um, so Jenks, Ivy and Rachel all decide to start their own runner agency and Ivy gets them set up in a small church as their base of operations. They end up living there together and, uh, which is also Keesley's the neighbor across the street from that church. And then, uh, oh, and you mentioned something about, uh, you know, witches. So, uh, Rachel is, um, self-proclaimed white witch she only made so there's always a cost of magic and white witches pay for that cost by basically the life force in the plants that they use to make their spells and charms and then um, you know a gray witch may still just use plants but turns their you know, a sleep charm that normally wouldn't hurt anybody. They use the sleep charm in a way that would, like, maybe somebody falls asleep and falls off of a skyscraper or something, and um, and it kills them. That's kind of where the gray witches are. And then the black witches actually, uh, they they can create more powerful spells, but they are, um, there's usually a cost in animal or human interlander sa- sacrifice of some kind. And then there's also uh, ley line uh, uh, mages that can draw on threads of power that run, invisible threads of power that run all over the place, uh, which the church just happens to be sitting on one. So that's interesting. Um, so anyway, uh, Rachel wants to get the IS death threat, death threat off of her back. And uh, she finds out that Trent Kalamak, who we've already talked about a little bit, um, who is a very prominent businessman in here, may be running a illegal drug called Brimstone. And she figures if she can tag him and let the IS take credit for it, that that'll get them off of her back. So what did you think about that hook? I think Trent is an amazing antagonist. I enjoyed any piece of information, any scene with him, any lore or just anything involving Trent. I gobbled that up because I think he's a great character. Um, And it, and it's going to be hard because he said there's like 16 books in the series. It's going to be hard for me to see a different antagonist if we continue this on other than Trent, because I think he's just the cream of the crop. Oh, that's interesting that you think there's a different antagonist. Oh, really? (laughs) I'm not saying that you're right or wrong. Just interesting that you were, uh, you were set on that. 
Well, uh, I mean, there's you said there's 16 books. I mean, how much can Trent do for 16 books? I mean, I guess he could do a lot, but I I think he's a great character. And that's pretty much all I'm going to say for now. All right. So, um all right. So what what was your take on the hook um for Rachel to get out from underneath her death threat roar? Yeah, I think I think it was really good, and I I think it was good because I think if it was just Rachel against the IS the whole time, the storyline would have just kind of petered out a little bit and become a little bit repetitive. Um, and it was really cool to have this added complexity because you you then ask the question, it adds a lot more complexity to each question. So like, who sent the demon? Is it the IS or is it um, Trent Calamac? And um, I agree wholeheartedly with Kat. I think Trent Kalamak isn't isn't like a really good bad guy, and I think a really well written bad guy actually makes the story more so than the main character, because uh, um, the main character has to be relatable. And the bad guy's got to be they're going to be mysterious enough that they keep you like interested. And he's like really cool. Like he has some high level of power. He's super cashed up, but you can. When you said it's interesting that there might be other bad people, I agree with Kat because when he goes to the newspapers at the end, he says, looking for new business. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's obviously, whoever's funding um, the biochemical drugs that he's creating and paying for them, obviously has like a power there that he's trying to reconnect with. And I think he's lost faith with whoever the next level up is. Okay. So, um, I thought it was, I thought it was as, uh, as much of a Rachel plan as you could possibly have. So Ivy's a planner. Um, Rachel's very much a seat, seat of my pants type, um, runner. And I thought that this was as, um, as dangerous and iffy of a idea as she would probably typically come up with I'm going to go implicate a important businessman in a brimstone operation to get the death threat off of my head from the IS. And I'm like, you know what? (laughs) That's a little harebrained, but yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's, that's a very Rachel plan. So, uh, I thought it fit with her character and I, uh, um, but, uh, talking about, Trent. Um, I also agree. I think that he makes a really, really good, um, you know, counter to the, um, to the main character or characters in the story. And, um, you know, almost always the, the villains, if you will have, you know, a great deal of resources behind them. And that's certainly true in Trent's case. Uh, interestingly, uh, Jenks as a, as a pixie is normally able to scent what people are like, witches smells like, uh, rosewood and, um, you know, wares smell like whatever type of animal that they change into. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and Jenks actually got a whiff of Calamac and, and his, um, manservant, uh, Jonathan, and, uh, 
said they both smelled exactly the same, but he couldn't figure out what they were. So any ideas there? What do you think, He Kat? said it was hints of uh, rosewood, right? But only like really hints, like magic had been used, but not necessarily a witch. Used, but no way strong enough to be a witch. Hmm. Um, so they were... Um, so the idea, the reason that he even brought that up was he believed that maybe a charm had been used to uh, nullify their scent so that um, they couldn't be scented by uh, pixies or fairies or whatever. So so, so what's your idea on Trent? Um, do you think that he's a uh, uh, living vampire? Do you think he's... Or human? I mean, we don't we don't even know if he's an Interlander. What do you say, Take Kat? it away, Roar. Oh, I, was oh, gonna, no, I wanted you, to hear you Roar. First. No, I, I want to hear you. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. All right. So a while ago I mentioned little seasonings of tidbits. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of two things. Um, very early on, they, as they were explaining lore, they were explaining wares, vampires, living vampires, pixies, fairies, witches, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. They also name dropped elves, but -hmm. they didn't say elves are around anywhere or anymore. Well, I, I, so the, the, because they had crossbred with humans, they're, DNA was like even more susceptible to the angel virus, right? So right. a lot of them died off. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a comment that they're either extinct or near extinction. They're so rare that you can't find them. Right. So I think that was a little bit of a huge bomb to say that they just casually dropped and never mentioned ever again. Um, and two... What he, I also think he could be, and I'm leaning more towards this one, is a demon. Hmm. Um, because demons are also rare and not in the same vein as, like, they they, they have to be, like, summoned from the, the uh, their, their world, right? The Ever After, yeah. The Ever After, yes. So I think he's just a demon because, you know, they... We've only seen one demon in the book so far. Allegedly, there's a second, mm-hmm. but I I think he's either an elf or a demon. All right. What about you, Roar? All right. I think I'm going to go through the facts here. My my facts that I pulled together for it. Right. Okay. So he has almost no scent, but that might be magically covered, right? Correct. There's, Obviously, there's a few hints that get thrown out throughout it. Um, they're trying to—they're either trying to misdirect or they're trying to tell you what the character is, right? But they allude to that he's aware because they say he hunts on the full moon. He also employs wares in his staff, but he tries to keep a pretty even mix, except for the fact that he will not hire pixies or fairies because they're the ones that can scent um, different types. So. He obviously doesn't want to be known what he is. He wants to keep it hidden. He's able to walk on holy ground because he or I reckon he wouldn't leave because he switches out um, Morgan's um, charm. It was something, it's something that he puts her ring or something. Yeah, she, her freckle ring. He, uh, he, he, stole, he stole one of her rings. 
That's right. Yeah. And then returns it in the mail like a couple of days later and he does it quickly. And I don't think he would send someone else to do that. So he's able to, he's able to walk on holy ground because uh, he enters into her bedroom being unspotted by Jenks or anybody, which is a pretty crazy feat. Um, his smell or his perception is perfect. So there's twice that uh, Rachel Morgan is in his office um, hiding. And he spots her both times without fault. So he's either able to smell her. Um, either way, he's able to sense people who are in the room, right? And he makes a specific comment when she, when he thinks that she's summoned the demon, she being Rachel Morgan. He said that he will not work with um, black witches because he obviously doesn't like them. And so this... I didn't think about the demon angle there, Kat, and I think that's actually a really good um, thought pattern because that might even fit with that because demons wouldn't work with the Black Witch because Black Witches can summon demons. They're the only ones who can summon them through the, the, the ley lines that I know of. So demons might not like them because they might be able to hold them to stuff. Um, he's also able to – he fights off a demon. So he's as demon – as equal to a demon's power – or greater, um, because he fights off the demon. Um, he might have also brought in a favour, but he seems pretty pissed about the demon thing. So my angle was, I think, I actually thought that because there's a hunt on the full moon, every full moon, and he hunts it, and it seems, like, very picturesque, that he might be some sort of, like, demigod that is of, like, um neutral good alignment because I think he might be doing, even though he's a bad guy, he might be doing stuff. Uh, he doesn't work with black witches. He might be doing things like selling the brimstone, which we didn't mention before, is actually like a drug for the interlanders. Um, and he's also mixed up with biochemical drugs as well, but we don't know why he's doing that. But the elf comment is also a good comment too, which I did not think about either because he might be trying to fix his race. The elf thing, the elf thing is just like I said. It's it's a casual bomb drop that yeah. they mention it, and then they never mention elves ever again in the entire book. They're just like, oh yeah, elves were part of the Interlanders, but you know they're all kind of dead and gone or whatever now. And it's just like, um, okay, that was just one point that really stuck out to me. I don't know if he is an elf. I'm leaning more towards a demon. Because especially um, Jonathan, his assistant, calls him Sahan a lot. And I think Sahan is more of like a demon name than an elfy name. Mm. But, no, also, you know. If you're an elf, why would you hunt down your parents and kill them? And it seems like a bit, because he kills his own parents and he says he, he did that on the hunt. The last person he had chased down and killed was um, was his dad. All right. So... so- I've read, I haven't read all of the Hollows series, but I've read um, at least through book 10. So I know what Trent is. And I'm not going to say, but I am going to point out some things that you guys could have already found in in the first book. Um, if he is a demon, he could not walk on holy ground. Yep. Then that's I thought that, but they never specifically um, said that because 
the demon delivered so the demon delivered the boyfriend can't remember his name and rachel morgan through the ley line but the ley line is in the backyard so um in the cemetery so maybe he dropped them off and that that bit wasn't clear and that's why i put walked on holy ground because that eliminates vampire but it doesn't eliminate it eliminates dead vampire vampire, but not living vampire correct Yeah. yeah and i wasn't sure about whether that eliminates demon or not but that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and um, as far as a where, um, Trent hunts on the full moon, but we saw him in a hunt and he had not altered shape. Yep. So um, at this point, I would discount where and I would discount dead vampire. And I would discount demon. That's assuming that he stole the ring. So we're making the if, assumption that he stole the ring and didn't arrange for the ring to be stolen. And and we don't know that he did. It is Rachel's assumption that it was him directly making a statement that you were able to break into my estate and I can break into yours too. Correct. And he seems, they, they allude that he's extremely possessive, extremely controlling, and constrict, like he's very organized and he likes things his way. So he, I would agree with her that it, that it would be him who, who does it, who's done it directly. So if it was him, then we have to take the holy ground thing into account and say he can't be a demon or a dead vamp. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and, I say he is Interlander, and the reason I say that is because of the split schedule he keeps. Mm -hmm. Most of the Interlanders want to be up when the sun is down. And Trent keeps normal business hours, but he runs a split schedule. He'll have like a four-hour, you know, he'll run the first part of the day and then have like four hours off and then another part of the day. So, uh, you know... To me, that says, like, he has to have a break because it's not the time of day that he would normally want to be up. Or it could be that he has his, you know, uh, bad business dealings during that time where, you know, he doesn't have his office open or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the and we do find out that he is supposedly uh, creating and running biodrugs um, in this book and that the brimstone that he's running is a is more or less a um red herring it's like hey cops look over here there's a illegal brimstone run going on and then the bio drugs go out the other door uh which is the and the reason the bio drugs are such a big deal is because of um the turn when the angel virus killed everybody bio uh bio engineers were basically burned at the stake and uh it became illegal to produce them so, um, oh, I just re- I didn't I forgot that the name of the virus was named Angel, and then when she was the rodent, and he entered her into the Calamac entered oh, Rachel yeah. Morgan into the thing named Angel. Yep, and he had a giggle about it, and I didn't understand the joke. Yep. now I do. Yeah, the Angel virus, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so let's get into that a little bit. So, in in trying to implicate uh, Trent in these uh, bio drug dealings. Rachel stirs a new spell to turn herself into a mouse to infiltrate Calamax's estate. 
and she asks Ivy to, who has an owl that lives up in the belfry of the, um, of the church to get one of the owl pellets and, uh, which are regurgitated balls of, uh, bone and fur and whatever else the owl can't process. And, uh, she takes, um, what she believes to be mouse hairs out of this pellet and uses them in stirring her spell. It's actually, the owl had actually killed a mink, and so they were mink hairs, and she turned herself into a mink instead of a mouse. And then... May I just add on that risky move, right? Because she said this could kill me, right? She's yes. making a spell she's never made before. It's fair enough in, in someone's made a little anecdote saying that works with any any rodent. And then she's taken some random hairs out of an owl poop. Uh, well, yeah, and uh, but uh, once again, I think this is very in character for Rachel. I think that she is um, very seat of seat of her pants. You know, um, I mean, she she knew there were risks involved, but this is uh, you know she figured it was a fair bet that it was a mouse uh, when when she took it. But yeah, so the and. And, and it is, uh, the, and owl pellets are not poop. They are regurgitated, like whatever sticks in their stomach that they can't digest. They puke it back out. Mm, okay. So, um, anyway, that was a, a very minor point. But, yeah, so she turns into a mink. Her and Jenks infiltrate the Calamac compound. And, um, essentially, she finds evidence that... Trent is um, dealing biodrug or making or running or ha- somehow involved with a biodrug trade, and but she's but she's caught, and uh, Trent puts her in a cage in his office as a mink, and the only thing that can turn her back human is if she uh, has dissolution of the spell in salt water. And uh, Trent's just going to keep her indefinitely in the in this cage, but she also sees some shady stuff go down while she's this make. Uh, she sees him have a meeting with one of his biochemists, and he kills him um, by shooting a little dart that is, has uh, bee venom in it, and he's like super allergic to it. So he goes into anaphylactic shock and dies on Trent's floor. And he's able to play it off as a bee sting, which was kind of brilliant, but uh, also pretty ruthless. Um, and so, um, and then uh, ends up that he he's trying to break Rachel to get her to agree to work for him. And since Rachel's refusing, She's stuck as a mink, and eventually, in order to accelerate this process, he enters her into the city's rat fights, which um, are an underground, you know, animal-on-animal event, and um, he puts her in the ring with the rats. So what did you guys think about this plot point? Cat? This, this is the part where I said it was a little slow. Yep, I agree. Um, And I thought it was odd to include this but what makes up for it is 
anything that involved Trent. Like, he didn't try to hide the fact that he was doing illegal bio drugs or running brimstone. He didn't change his personality. He didn't, like, just because Rachel was a mink in a cage behind him, he kept on as if things were normal and, like, she wasn't even there. So I liked that we got to see that side of him in, like, the kind of, like, almost like the true side of him. So it was... It was good to see that, and I think that makes up for it. But also, her being a mink, I really think just slowed down the pacing of the book. And the rat fights, the rat fights were rat fights. I, I, that was a whole nother kind of weird. So, uh, Roar, what'd you think? Yeah, I mean, like, I agree with Catway. Like, how else do you then write into the story? how they're operating, except for I looked at it at a different angle. I was like, was he pretending? Like, was he, you know, angling something a certain way? I found it pretty risky that he would kill one of his employees, like, directly in front of her and then act business as normal. But it comes back to being a total control freak, right? He thinks that she's not ever going to get out, that she's going to die in the rat fights or he's going to kill her. Or that she's going to work for him. I mean, yeah. if he breaks her. so Yeah, and I think it was interesting because this is where he brought in his 2IC, um, like his manservant, um, where he mentioned Jonathan, that, yeah. Yeah, that he also broke Jonathan in, in a similar way over a long period of time, um, which tells you that, and that Jonathan also had morals. Um but that he he managed just to sway him to his side, so it's it's an interesting dynamic where they're able to have a, have a, a main bad guy revealed his true character or his whatever his persona he's pushing um, for a period of time. But it did slow things down. They could have made it a bit punchier with the rat fights. I think the rat fights were okay, and it kind of then introduced that the boyfriend because the boyfriend is one of the other rats in the final um, battle. But again, I think you're right, Cat. Like I zoned out a little bit on that. Yeah, that section. Yeah, I thought I thought like you said, it probably could have been punched up a little bit. And yeah, so uh, when Rachel gets entered into or Angel gets entered into the the rat fights as a mink. Uh, the rat that she's put up against is called the Bloody Baron and has been in several, been successful in several fights. She finds out through um, using really primitive communication that the Bloody Baron is also a transmuted person of some kind, interlander, human, we don't know at this point. And um, they help each other to escape the fights. Um, I think that, um, they eventually, um, like come together and, um, like choke each other out so that the audience thinks that they're both dead. And when the, when they go to, when the handlers go to pick them up, then they spring back to life and bite them and, and go running off and, and finally get out. Um, uh, Jenks is around, helps them escape. And they end up, um, they end up back at the church, and uh, in in their uh, regular person guys again after the spell gets dissolutioned, 
and then Rachel's convinced that she has to go back and get the evidence from Trent's office about the bio drugs. And, but she feels like she needs a more potent spell to use. And, uh, Nick, who is, uh, who the bloody Baron in, ends up Nick Sparagamos is his real name. Uh, he's, uh, supposed to be a human and he, uh, took a demonology course. And while he was doing that, um, he was in the library. He knows where they keep like their old texts and he's able to get Rachel into that area. And while she's looking at that text, a demon in the guise of a dog appears, and as we've referenced already, and ends up uh, attacking both of them. Um, and the demon's supposed to turn into the thing that you're most afraid of. So it showed up in the guise of a dog, but after it got a good look into Rachel's eyes, actually became a uh, vampire that looked like Ivy and freaking tore her throat out. And um, Nick ends up saving Rachel uh, by um, binding the demon in a, a circle of blood. So uh, how was this scene for you guys? This was probably the most memorable scene because we haven't really touched on it. Um, but there is some like tension between Ivy and, um, Rachel. Yeah. Tension's a good way to say it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's not bad tension. It's more of kind of like a, I want you, but you're not ready kind of thing. Uh, kind of tension, which I thoroughly enjoyed very much. And, um, I wanted more of that. But so that's why there was a point where Ivy was just like on top of her, ready to like bite her and Rachel was freaking out. So she has a little bit of mental scarring from that moment. And that's why the demon dog turned into a vampire and with the likeness of Ivy and was attacking her is because she was still scared of Ivy and what Ivy could do to her. Um, But I thought it I thought it was great. The whole thing like with the binding and the biting and like bleeding out. And then the hysteria afterwards uh, in the aftermath, it was, it was good. So, um, and did we learn the demon's name in this scene? No, I don't think so. No, not that I remember. Okay. Uh, spoiler alert. He comes back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and you, yeah. and you end up learning his name. Um, he is way too interested in Rachel. He knows way too much about her. There's more, there's a whole lot more there. So and there's a whole lot more about the boyfriend too, who is shady AF. Yeah, he's totally shady as for as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, I mean, so he's. He's taken courses in demonology. He he grew up in the hollows and you know, knows all about witches and everything. And he's not afraid to do what needs to be done in the moment to get you to the next moment. And if that happens to be, you know, fighting as a rat or knifing somebody in the back or summoning a demon, I don't think that he would hesitate. Um, no, and I think when he says he 
knows demonology and that he knew that there was a deal. I think he knows a lot more than what he lets on. And Kat, do you think he's actually human? I think he's human. Then what, also, what's his deal with the FIB? Because they know him. What do you think is, is the situation there? That, I have no idea. He he's, seems like a jack-of-all-trades in the wrong kind of way. So, I that could be anything of what yeah, okay. he was. I, I don't have a clue. I think he's an underground agent. That's interesting. Um, okay, so I can't comment on that. No, um, no I figured you wouldn't. And I the, think he's an underground agent or is working for the vampires. So um, once Nick has the demon bound um, and and he can't escape, but he'll go back to the Ever After at dawn, the demon basically says, hey, your girlfriend's bleeding out over there. And if you don't get her help soon, she's going to die. And I can help you do that, but you got to let me go. And you have to let me go and run amok f- until the dawn when I'm when I am forced back to the ever after. So and specifically do whatever he wants. Yes. Which could be anything. So it's not to do a specific thing. He right. does mention that he wants to go beat up the person who summons him, but specifically he says to do whatever I want. That's him. right. And so Nick agrees and, uh, Rachel's Rachel is dying, but she keeps telling him, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And he agrees to it. But in order to, um, take Rachel through the ley line to get her to the church quicker so that Ivy can care for her, um, he, demands another price and that is he puts a demon mark on rachel and or, or actually um he the wound on her wrist won't heal keeps bleeding unless she agrees to accept a demon mark which eventually she does so then it becomes just like a, a circle with a like a line half circle with a line drawn through it or something i read this slightly differently Okay. So I understood it slightly differently. So the way I saw it is that there was a deal. So the demon, so he drew, so the boyfriend drew the circle of blood around the demon. So he's stuck. Um, he he can he can't leave essentially till the morning, um, where he'll go back to where he came from. And there's the deal that the demon will take them back through the ley line. Um, the ley line at the cost of a demon mark on um, on the boyfriend, oh, and no. that's what the cost is. But she, but Rachel's been bitten, and so he's not going to heal her. She'll con- consistently bleed out forever until because she was bitten when when the demon was looked like Ivy, and in order for that to be healed the demon mark is going to ha- happen. So the boyfriend failed to do the negotiation. For He could have probably thrown it all in because they said they don't do anything for, for for free, but he didn't even try to do a negotiation. He just accepted it. Okay. What'd you? How did you interpret it, Kat? Um, I 
don't know. I interpreted how it came out. I I just thought like, you know, uh, the um, I'm at a loss for words. Honestly, I don't know. Okay, so I, just, I uh, don't that, trust the demon is all, and I don't trust the boyfriend. So, so I think there might have been. But but yeah. but we'll agree that functionally Rachel has a demon mark owes the demon a favor at some point in the future. In order to heal her risk wound, yeah, she has to to take on a favor. She can either bleed forever or or take on a demon mark where she owes. But it was only her wrist that continued to bleed. The really bad wound at her throat um, didn't healed up. Yeah, right, exactly. So, um, but the uh, and, and also this was a place where I really enjoyed getting um, some time with some of the secondary characters. Keasley came uh, over to help uh, heal Rachel, and also Jenks's wife, Madalena, um, uh, sewed Rachel up with stitches so small that you can barely see the scar. So I've got a question here. Okay. So Keasley mentioned something about the demons, so he obviously knows about demons, right? Uh, but that, he says yeah. that, that there's a clear comment here which says, you know, how does anyone know about the demons because there hasn't been any demon attack activity since the turn. When when was the turn? How long ago was that? Uh, I, do you remember, Cat? I think they said, I I thought it had been, uh, like, I thought it was like forty years prior or something like that. I don't remember. Um. Well, uh, we can come back to that. Um, so, but basically Rachel's, uh, she has her life saved by her friends and then, um, but she has, um, she wants the, um, FIB to help because she can't go to the IS cause they've got a, a death threat out on her. So she wants to go to the FIB for help, and but she's unable to. So Ivy and Jenks go, which ends up um, the FIB don't believe them. There's an incident. Ivy ends up hurting several of the FIB agents and gets put in jail. Uh, Jenks is also um, uh, basically stuff him in a water bottle, I think they said. Um, and then... Uh, so Rachel has to go and get them out. So this is where we meet Eden and Captain Eden, and he is uh, an older guy, still in pretty good shape, and he's um, and he's pretty smart. And essentially, he wants. You know, there's a rivalry, rivalry, like we said, between the IS and the FIB, and he wants Rachel to consult for the FIB on uh, Interland Matters. And unless she agrees to that, they won't release Jenks and uh, Ivy. So Rachel does agree to it, and they get sprung. And um, then um, finally um, she breaks into Trance Estate again. And gets the evidence of his biodrug dealings and barely escapes with her life. 
because Trent uh, releases his hounds and they hunt uh, Rachel on the way out of the compound. And uh, the way this is also how she gets Trent off of her back because uh, she is successful in keeping the evidence and basically says, lay off or I'm going to, um, I'm going to release this information about you. And so at that point, Trent's threats to Rachel become more like job offers, like really lucrative job offers. And, uh, also, um, they think they have, uh, Trent hung anyway, because, um, they catch Francis and, um, have the, and, uh, he's a, it's a bus depot, isn't it? Where, um, and, um, he has, uh, the bio drugs with him. So they think that they've got him anyway. And, um, so there's this big fight and then, uh, Francis ends up in FIB custody and killed while in FIB custody. Um, mm-hmm. they, they like take him to an armored car or something and the whole thing explodes and nobody even knows how, um, he was really gotten to, but he was killed. So without a, without a witness to testify, uh, it all becomes hearsay. So Trent ends up slipping the noose, but because Rachel held, held up her into the FIB, they end up paying off or getting the, um, IS to back off and the death threat goes away. So that's kind of where it wraps. So talk about that. Um, you know, the hunt and the, and the fight in the bus station that, what'd you guys think? Um, I'll go first. Yeah. So the, I, it, it originates that they're doing the bio drug pickup on at the airport. Um, and then they become aware that the, that the, the FIB, the FIB are just about to raid the, the airport. Um, and they do a bait and switch where Francis essentially goes and picks up the bio drugs and switches it out for the brimstone um, and goes to the bus depot. Um, I, I thought that was pretty cool. I thought it could probably would have been better if it didn't use the same car, but I understand, um, you know, they were letting him essentially be a fall guy because they knew they would probably have to clear him out if he couldn't do it successfully. Um I liked the the raid. I felt that was a little bit chaotic in what was going on and like the explanation. I didn't feel like it was like super smooth the way that it was explained um, and why. But it brought up a few cool things like Rachel Morgan's like quite powerful when it comes to witches. So you have three witches that are fighting against her and she basically solos them, um, or two of them anyway. Um and they're dark witches, and she's essentially like a white slash gray witch, um, and she's able to um, to fend them off. So it shows you that she's probably a little bit more powerful than than what's alluded to as far as witches go. Um, the thing that I loved about this is that the bio drugs were in tomatoes, which is why humans won't touch them because they're afraid of tomatoes because that's what carried the angel virus. And I thought that was genius because they, ha- they basically have these biodrugs and none of, none of the cops are going to open it up because they're inside tomatoes and they're afraid of them. I just found that genius. And and they actually grow the, the tomato around a ampule of the virus or of the biodrug. 
It's not yeah. like they well, slit it and stick it inside to where there's physical evidence of it. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. So what did you, uh, what did you think about uh, the uh, climactic conclusion, Cat? Um, it certainly was very chaotic. I'll, I'll, I'll agree to that. Um, I thought the assassins at the end was probably a little unnecessary and that kind of came out of left field, um, because it just added more towards the chaos, but I can see why they, they were there is to like Calamax about to get caught you know they got francis he's ready to squeal like a pig um about everything and then these assassins come in to kill her and probably end it all and silence it all and a very like as we mentioned earlier like it was subtle at first the death threats and then it just became out of control and like blatantly like midday or midnight i guess they were just straight up going after her um and yeah it was it was tied up pretty nicely um the one thing that i that stuck out to me is when um francis was in fib custody and there was a bomb that went off then he died um that calamac in true um evildoer bad guy fashion was like in a car off in the distance with his window down looking at rachel and everyone saying like yeah i know what you did i'm here this is what i did and that's where it alluded to that he was all beaten up and scarred um that it's alluded to that the demon that attacked Rachel went to attack Kalamak as well but later on when she infiltrated his complex again and he found her he blamed her for summoning the demon um that attacked him yes and and she was like, I didn't summon no demon. I mean, granted, she had a demon mark on her wrist that he immediately pointed out. Um, but she wasn't the one that summoned the demon. So that what alludes to a second demon that came and went for Kalamak. Because the first demon, which we thought was Kalamak or the IS, is still unknown who summoned that one. And then now we know that there's a second one that went after him. So there is just more mystery laid on. At the very end, which I thought, and it left it open. There's one. More. There's one other possibility, and I'm only bringing this up because uh, I I I I cited the same things you're talking about. Uh, also, we know that Jonathan was the one that planted whatever exploded. We just don't know what exploded because, like, he was walking back to the car that Trent was watching from. Uh, or at least that's it's implied that Jonathan was the one that actually did the killing. Um, but um, I I thought there could have been two demons. But then I I also thought so. What if Trent wasn't the one that summoned the one that attacked Rachel? But when he was freed. Yes, he was going to go back and beat the crap out of the person that summoned him, but also maybe the rest of his tour that evening, Kalamak was for some reason on his radar. And he visited both of them. Mm. That's plausible, yeah. 
Yeah, because he had he basically could run free reign. And and the so he re- could do whatever he wanted. Right. So uh, I think that he probably did go back and try to kill the person that summoned him, which you you first think is Calamac until the point you brought up. He's like, hey, you sent a demon after me. So obviously it wasn't him. Um, but um, the other thing is Calamac knew about demons. So obviously he had had dealings with them or people who'd had dealings with them before. And so maybe this demon had a grudge of some kind. Well, your theory makes sense because Calamac, without any sort of instigating, Calamac feels that Rachel sent the demon. Yes. So maybe, and this is what I was saying, so the demon definitely has some some sort of ties to Rachel because although he was sent there, he seemed really interested in Rachel. Um, Like, for example, her demon mark is different to the humans, and maybe that's a racial thing. Um, and they get like witches get different demon marks to humans, but um, there's the potential that the if it was the same demon, he went to Calamac on the way and gave him a good roughing and was like, you know, Rachel's mine, not yours. And that, yeah, I didn't think about that, but that's actually a pretty strong argument. So, um, and given how given how rare demon attacks have become since the turn. I thought having two demons running around was a lot for going from none for years and years to all of a sudden there's two. That's true. Um, the, um, okay. So, um, that was pretty much it. Uh, unless you guys want to bring up some other points that I missed. Yeah, I thought, so one thing I thought, a hypothesis that I ruled out was that Calamac's servants might have raised the the demons, but then he said specifically, I don't work with dark witches, which is why I think that he might be a demigod that's like um, like somewhat good aligned because he won't deal with them or he has a past with them. So uh, and it I- definitely can't be that. I did right. just look it up on the Hollows Wiki. It said that um, the turn is a, a historic event referring to the outing of Interlanders approximately 40 years before the start of Dead Witch Walking. I thought it was. So, so that means Keasley would doesn't have to be directly involved with, with demons in order to know about them because he would have heard things that happened. So that's fine. Yeah, and it was. It says a bioweapon developed during the alternate history Cold War era was released from an Arctic lab, and it was quarantined, but it managed to spread south to Rio, and um, it mutated and attached itself to the T4 Angel Tomato, and as a uh, carrier, where it was shipped all over the world, and then um, it killed off. A large swath of humanity. So, um, all right. Well, anything else that we need to mention? I got nothing. Oh, actually, I do have something. Um, I don't know about you guys, but the way I pictured Ivy was that 
horrendous creation of a chimera from Full Metal Alchemist. That was the only thing I had in my mind every time I looked at Ivy. Okay. Yeah, you posted a picture of that, right? I did. I, I yeah. sent it to you, and I'm like, that's that's how I pictured Ivy the entire time, and I could not get it out of my head. Um, I I actually just had her I, and had her envisioned as a really hot Asian, and with long, straight, dark hair. Yeah, that's similar, um, but kind of tallish. Uh, you know, like a lot of Asians are like shorter in stature. Um, Adder is like a tallish one because she's she stands above. Uh, Rachel Morgan. Um, but yeah, so, okay. So the million dollar question is, um, are you, uh, are you interested in hitting the next book? Yes. For me, I want to, just cause I want to see what happens with Trent. Okay, so um, do you want to um, do you want to do next book? Uh, say by the end of August, and yeah. and then um, we can come back and sure. and do a report on that one too. Yeah, yeah I have two thirty-hour flights, so I can get to through one or two books in the next three weeks. So the uh, book two of the series is called. Um, the good, the bad, and the undead. After the good, the bad, and the ugly. And um, so, yeah, let's uh, let's take a listen to that, and then uh, we'll get back and um, and give uh, more opinion. I've got two quick questions before we leave. All right. So, do you think that the sublease that she offered to Jackson and the family will come back to bite Rachel Morgan? So essentially, if you remember from the books, where she's like semi-delirious from the demon bite, she mentions to Jenks' wife that um, because she gets um, a rent reduction by looking after their garden so they don't have to pay for a gardener to come in to do it. Um, and uh, and that that is her way to pay less rent from her portion. Uh, but essentially, the pixies are doing all of the garden maintenance anyway. So she said, why don't you just sublease that out? For the rent reduction and then you can own the garden as like a sublease um and that basically changes the dynamics because uh pixies and fairies don't own property they usually battle um to the death for them and there's basically open warring rights where they can fight for land and this offers jenks and family a way to have the first lease ever and so question for you cat and when you might actually know the answer to this but do you think it will come back to bite them in any way yeah, I, I I absolutely know what comes of that whole situation, so I can't say anything. I have no idea. I look forward to seeing what happens. I don't know, okay. maybe it'll start like a fairy war with the back garden or something. Yeah, I feel like it's gonna be it's gonna be something. There's gonna be something there because it's it's pretty significant change, right? So uh, if you guys get far enough into this series. Um, there is absolutely, um, plot progression in that garden, um, okay. with regards to its inhabitants, 
um, you know, what goes on there. So, uh, that's all I'll say is that there is plot progression there. Um, and if, if you end up deciding to quit the series before you see the major plot progression that happens there, just remind me to tell you about it. So, uh, because it is pretty cool. Okay. And the last one that I've got is, uh, Ivy says that she's a, not an acting vampire. So essentially what that means is that while she's a living vampire, she doesn't have to drink blood, but she still has the cravings. Yeah, so, she's not practicing. Um, yep. Yeah, that's it. She's not a practicing vampire. So in other words, she's not drinking blood. And she says that um, although Jenks alludes to the fact that she smells like she's basically fresh, right? Yeah, so... Uh, the way that I remember him describing it is that she smells like either she uh, very recently stopped, but according to Ivy, she's been off of it for quite a while. Hmm. Or she was so into it when she was doing it before that it's st- she still hasn't gotten all the stink off of her. And so she says that she's been clean for three years, which is a very, very long time. So the, the so I've got two questions about this. So is she lying about that? And then also they allude that she, there's, there's a point, I don't know who mentions it, but that she has essentially moved into the church weeks beforehand and her leaving the, the, um, Intel, IB, Intel and Bureau, whatever it is, um, wasn't actually caused by Rachel leaving, but was a premeditated plan um, on Ivy's part. So the question is, is she lying and to what extent? So Kat, over to you. Um, There's certainly something going on. I don't think she's lying per se. I think she's just not saying the full story, kind of like, Nick, where he's just shady in every single way. I'm sure there's a reason behind it, but I don't think it's any ill intention behind what she's doing. I think she's just kind of just, she has her own agenda, and it's maybe it's not something Rachel might approve of or something. I don't know. Yeah, there's definitely an agenda there, and I feel like it's something to do with her own family. Like, she has done previous actions where she does everything to try to piss off her mum, who was a living vampire and is now a full vampire, So, um, which was a little bit hard to get around at first because they mentioned that her mum had died, and I was like, I thought she had actually died, but I mean, she had just... She had had her first death, yeah. And she's now now a vampire, so I I missed that at first, um, which was quite interesting that's the reason why i love this whole vampire complexity between the high the low the living the dead that um the practicing and the non-practicing scion it's actually quite complex and i loved it um yeah yeah, i'm interested to see what happens with ivy sorry you go with vampires get a lot of play in these pages um that's uh i mean witches get some uh, because Rachel obviously is, but it seems like a, a lot of the focus on the lore and everything that you're getting comes from the vampire side of things, 
we know that wares are there. We know kind of some of their traits and that sort of thing, but we don't really get a lot of lore on them. Um, we, and the same thing about pixies, we find out that, yeah, they don't like fairies and, uh, you know, there's, there's a few things that we learn about them, but we don't really dive into their lore, but we get a ton of vampire stuff. Um, so, um, I don't think that it's a major spoiler. I can tell you whether or not Ivy is actually practicing or not, if you want me to. Because I don't think it no. really spoils anything. No, I think it's good because of the, I like the dynamic of the guessing between the lying. It's, they've done well to add those level of complexities to instead of having a straight view as someone who's reading it from a third person perspective, you can you can kind of see everything. They they feed you a little bit of doubt that's for right, Rachel Morgan, which helps with the dynamic between Rachel and Ivy, and I think that's that's actually quite good. You can tell that she trusts. Jenks more than Ivy, um, and she has trust issues. So, but she's trying to be a good friend to Ivy. Yeah, uh, and Ivy's, I think, trying to be a good friend to Rachel too. Um, I think the, I think Cat alluded to this earlier. I think there's some sexual tension between Ivy and Rachel. Mm-hmm. Um, and. You know, Rachel is basically like, I'm straight and, you know, don't really want that. And, but then anytime that, you know, Ivy pins her or, you know, something like that, you're, you're not quite sure that she believes that as much as she says. Yeah. Um, so what was the other one besides the practicing or not practicing? Was what date she moved in? Um, cause they had, oh, uh, yeah. So, um, the only information that this book gives us is that, um, things are conveniently, uh, conducive to Rachel being at ease. There's a huge kitchen for her to stir spells. There's a huge garden for her to get all the herbs and stuff that she needs. There is a convenient library of ancient books of spells for her to stir because the stink of it was that the old minister was a practicing witch. Um, everything And holy ground is very convenient so that vampire assassins, dead vampire assassins, and demons can't come to get her. And so it almost seems tailor-made. And on a ley line. And on a ley line. That, yeah, it's, it's just like almost ideal conditions With for With a church Rachel. that's vacated recently because they can't afford to pay their bills because they had renovations. Right. It's, just, it's very, very, very... Everything's super convenient. Suspicious. The yeah. only thing that we have that, for me, delays this belief that this was absolutely set up and probably by Ivy... Um is that Keasley was full on ask, when did Ivy move in? And he said, same same week that you did. Well, he says, I think. Right. So, but I mean, he seems like he keeps his eye on things. Yeah, true. So I, you know, at this point, um, I think there's too many conveniences, but we have an eyewitness account that says, yeah, yeah, same, same time. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah, at this point, I I wouldn't know what to believe. 
Um, but an awful lot of conveniences. Um, so, uh, was that it? Yeah, there was another one, um, but I've forgotten what it is right now, so I can ask you at another point. But, yeah, I, just closing it up, I think it's really well written. There's a lot of complexity in everything. Um, I don't 100% believe, you know, that you would ha have a witch who's a practicing witch who would have all these unique spell books up in the loft in a church. It just doesn't all make sense. And I just... All yeah. these little things that we've only brought up a few of these things, but throughout the book, so there's like a lot of this stuff, which is really like just in the background. Um, and I think it's going to come in in the later books, and I think it's going to be great. All right. Kat, any final thoughts? Uh, no, but you're going to be stealing all my money from reading all these books. <laughs> um, I, I do a. Uh, uh, we don't have to get into this very deep, but I, I do a annual subscription to audible. I get 24 credits a year. And, um, and then if I happen to run out, then, um, you know, credits are cheap. So, um, I usually, but I usually don't, I mean, uh, it's rare for me to read probably more than, um, uh, that allotment in a, in a year's time. So, uh, but yeah, I hear you. <laughs> uh, still cheaper than paper books. Um, all right. Well, guys, if you don't have uh, anything else, I guess we can close this down. And uh, I had a lot of fun reading this and um, rereading it for me. Uh, kind of took me back because uh, I got, I don't know, uh, probably six books into this series when I discovered the Mercy Thompson series and I quit it cold turkey to read the entire Mercy Thompson series before I came back to this one um, but um, anyway it was, a, it was a good refresher and also a good reminder of why I like this series in the first place so um, we'll, um, we'll take in the next book and then uh, when everybody's done we'll come in with a report on that one so Appreciate you guys making the time to do this. Uh, we ran, uh, hell, hour and 42 minutes. So, um, Kat, Roar, thanks again for doing this, guys. Thank you. Anytime.